Our Old Testament lesson comes from Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, hear now the word of our God. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the word of the Lord. Um, as, we'll, uh, as we'll see, Deuteronomy 14 is expounding the third commandment, uh, which is the third commandment. The, the third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. I, I think sometimes when we think about the third commandment, we focus only on the, the most literal meaning of that, that, oh, I should be careful not to, to use God's name vainly in my speech, which is certainly true. Uh, we should be mindful of how we use God's name, that 
we shouldn't be using God's name flippantly and certainly not uh, in a form of a curse, except in those times when a curse is appropriate. You know, there are times when a curse is appropriate. In that case, you can use God's name in that way, but not flippantly. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you suddenly realize, oh, that is what a curse is for. It's generally, road rage is usually the worst sorts of examples of it where you're like, you're upset about somebody. But there are times when people do truly damnable things. And uh, so that's where there are appropriate uses for those words. But you need to make sure that you're doing it mindfully and you really are calling on God to do something in this situation. It's appropriate to do that. That's not taking God's name in vain. The problem is, most people, when they're using God's name in such ways, are doing it entirely without thinking about the God whom they are calling, and therefore he, as the Lord will not hold him guiltless, that takes his name in vain. Our, our larger catechism has a helpful summary of, of, of what is required in the third commandment. That The third commandment requires that the name of God his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, and you know, the casting of lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing by an holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Uh, the word conversation has perhaps changed in its meaning over the last several hundred years. Uh, we think of it simply in terms of conversation as being a, a speech between people. But uh, in the 17th century, conversation included your conduct. So that's why it says, by an holy profession and answerable conversation, uh, certainly your speech plays a major role in your interactions with others, but your actions are also part of this. And that's why... Question 113 says that the sins forbidden in the third commandment are the using of God's, sorry, the not using of God's name as is required. So, so for instance, if, if you encountered that damnable situation and you didn't ask God to do something about it, then you're not, you're failing to use God's name appropriately. You should be calling on God to stop that. Um, so that's where not using God's name properly in the, as it is required, but also the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if things unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, abusing the name of God, the creatures or anything contained under the name of God to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or anywise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, 
making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends, being ashamed of God's name or ashamed to God's name by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or backsliding from it. Uh, start realizing, wow, if we, and if we take that seriously, then pretty much any time we sin, we are violating God's holy name. Because any time we are, I mean, we've, God has placed his name on us in our baptism. So therefore, any time we are acting contrary to his ways, we are profaning his holy name. And uh, since the third commandment has that last phrase, you know, the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain, the Catechism asks, what reasons are annexed to the third commandment? And the, the reasons annexed to the third commandment in these words, the Lord thy God, and for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain, are because he is the Lord and our God. Therefore, his name is not to be profaned or any way abused by us, especially because he will be so far from acquitting and sparing the transgressors of this commandment as that he will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment, albeit many such escape the censures and punishments of men. People get away with it all the time. But God's reminding us that he's the one who will take note of uh, our using his name vainly. Our New Testament lesson comes from Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Hear now the word of our God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. 
You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. When Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and calling them to holiness, he uses this language of touching no unclean thing, language taken from Isaiah, and in order to understand what Paul's doing there, I think we need to go back to Deuteronomy 14 and understand what it meant to honor God's name in the Old Testament. Uh, because while Christ transforms the Ten Commandments, he does not abolish them. So what does it mean, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain? The details may look a little different in the New Testament, but the New Testament always assumes that you understand the Old Testament because that's the scripture that the the apostles preached from. So therefore, they would have been preaching Old Testament scripture and explaining how this applied in their own day. So let's go back to Moses' own exposition of the third commandment in Deuteronomy 14. And notice where the passage starts. You are sons of the Lord your God. Uh, God had said of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. Uh, Now the plural use of sons is more rare in the Old Testament. But it's still there. God says through Moses, You are sons of the Lord your God. God has put his name upon you. You are now part of his family, and so you should more and more resemble your father. With my my family in town last week, you probably saw a fair amount of family resemblance, but the resemblance is not just physical and outward. There are habits and practices, both for better and for worse, that wind up becoming part of the family tradition and ways of doing things that, that become ingrained in families. The family name is lived out in the actions of the family. And that's, and that's where Moses starts in verses 1 and 2, where he commands the Israelites not to cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Now, that sounds odd to us because we're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern practices, but the, the, the practices of the pagan nations around them were that they would mutilate their bodies out of grief for the dead. And Israel was not to imitate them. And at the heart of the reasoning for this is that, that, that God wants to teach his people not to think of death as something final. 
Yes, there is something unclean about death. There is something that is not proper about death. But you should not think like the nations about death. And I would suggest this is just as true today. Uh, there's, there's, I would call it an alarming rise in cremation today. It's almost as though Christians think that the body doesn't matter. But it, Now, just be clear, I'm not saying that it's a sin to get cremated. Rather, it's an unfortunate picture. After all, what's the, when you think about something burning in the fire, that's a picture of hell. So what, what the cremation basically is a picture of you know, destruction by fire. And that's why all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and all through church history, Christians made a big deal about burying bodies because that's, that's a picture that connects to the resurrection. Now, God will have no problem with... If you think about, can God take dead bodies from... He, people sometimes ask, if a shark eats you and you become part, you know, God has no problem finding bodies. I mean, that's, he, he created everything. He knows where to find everything. So God, God is able to raise anybody no matter what was done to their body. But if your body belongs to Christ, and if you think about, I mean, this is where, our catechism says it well, when it's, our, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and to immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. I mean, my, my father had instructed us to cremate him and my, my siblings were all, we were all like, we want to honor our father, but we, were, we all looked at each other and said, we can't do this and so we will pay to bury him. Because that's, we just, we, it was one of those odd moments where you're like, okay, he said to do this, but we want to honor him, even if that meant not doing what he asked us to do. Because, yeah, and that's where just as Israel should not imitate the death practices of the nations around them, so also we should not imitate the death practices of the nations around us. And instead, Moses says, you are sons of the Lord your God. The reason why you should not imitate the practices of the nations is because you are children of God. The language of, of sonship is, is regularly used to talk about inheritance and service. Uh, you, you cannot act like the nations regarding death because you are sons of the Lord. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Your father is holy. His name is holy. Notice that the name of the Lord is used three times in these two verses. So don't treat death like a pagan. Then the, the central part of the chapter deals with the holiness of the people of God with respect to food. And the, these food laws have, have been perplexing to many, but... God was essentially teaching his people about the importance of boundaries. That there's a principle of, of separation, of, of holiness, is described by these boundaries. Basically, Israel is supposed to have a distinct, a distinct set of practices that separate them from the nations that, so that they live as a holy people. They live as a people that belongs to the Lord their God. 
And so through these distinctive practices and rituals, Israel was called to, dis- to create a different sort of community, a people that, was, that lived in the way of the Lord. The Ten Commandments, in one sense, form the most important of those boundaries. This is, this is, this is the covenant that God gave to his people, to, to live according to the Ten Commandments. And this is the way of life that should characterize the people of God. And so, so the food laws then developed boundaries in what Israel was to eat. And the best way to describe it is that unclean animals are those that cross perceived boundaries. Uh, there are three general categories that Moses discusses, the animals, fish, and birds. And animals that part the hoof and chew the cud are clean, and those that do one but not the other are not. Now, uh, some people have thought, oh, well, God gave these for health reasons. But there's no biblical evidence for that. And it's not the reason that God gives. God says that Israel shall do this because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Indeed, down in verse 21, uh, the, the animal that dies of its own is permitted for a sojourner to eat, or you can sell it to a foreigner. If it, if it was for health reasons that God said you shouldn't do this, then God would say, don't give it to the sojourner, don't sell it to the foreigner, because everywhere in Scripture, God cares about the sojourner and the foreigner and says that they should be treated the same way as you treat your brother. So if there was something inherently dangerous about eating these animals, he wouldn't have said, oh, sojourners and foreigners can do it. So this wasn't for health reasons. This is for holiness reasons. And the picture that God is giving to Israel is that Clean animals are those that, you might say, fulfill its proper function. Notice how in the water animals, the, water, the, the fish, anything with fins and scales, you may eat. So in a sense, it's, it's giving them this, okay, fish have fins and scales. So if you see something in the water that doesn't have fins and scales, then it's, it's sort of, it's, it's improper. It's unclean. Uh, carrion birds, likewise, are unclean. They feed on dead things, which is improper uh, in a sense winged insects are unclean birds are the ones that are supposed to fly so flying insects are an aberration now notice that god's not saying that unclean animals are bad he's not saying that he made a mistake when he created them rather god is teaching israel about holiness he's teaching them the difference between that which is proper and improper and so he takes animals that he created And he uses their oddities to teach Israel about holiness. Remember that Israel bears the name of the Lord. The son bears the name of his father. As a holy people, Israel must be separate from the nations. Now, the last sentence of verse 21 illustrates this idea of proper function beautifully. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. If you think about it, an act of killing should not be mixed with a life-giving substance. It's crossing boundaries. The mother goat's milk is life-giving. So to cook a young goat in its mother's milk, I mean, quite frankly, that's just, that's just wrong. We, I, 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 it's, Orthodox Jews have taken this to... Orthodox Jews do not practice what God said. Orthodox Jews say, just eating a cheeseburger is wrong because there's, you have meat and milk in the same dish. But if you know that the milk came from some other goat, there's nothing wrong about that. 
So that's where it's it's if, if you uh, Israel was supposed to exhibit sort of corporate holiness through their communal life as the people of God. Um, as we saw from the Catechism, keeping God's name holy has as much to do with the way you live as it does the way you talk. And the Catechism got that from Moses' own exposition of the Ten Commandments here in Deuteronomy. Well, verses 22 to 29 then apply the same principle of of God's holy name to economics. Uh, Now, there's an interesting connection between holiness and economics in Scripture. We often just think about holiness in terms of, of morality, but we don't often think of finances in terms of holiness. But if we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, then that would include loving God with our wealth. Deuteronomy 14 calls Israel to, to bring their tithe to the place that God would choose to make his name dwell there. Notice the emphasis in verse 23 on God's name. That before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain. And again in verse 24, the provision for what to do if, if the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Because you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that includes how you use the resources God has given you. Remember the, 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 the temptations that we saw in Deuteronomy 6-9. through 9. In chapter 8, verse 17, Moses warned Israel, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. What God is doing is reminding His people that all that we have is a gift from Him. And... So once a year, they were to bring the tithe of all their produce to the sanctuary. Now, I don't know if you've you've ever noticed this before, but the tithe here in Deuteronomy 14 was not entirely given to the priests and Levites. Every three years, in the third year, the tithe was given to the Levites and to the poor, verses 28 and 29. But in the other two years, you would bring the tithe and have a big celebration, which coincides with the Feast of Tabernacles. You would include the Levites and the poor in in these celebrations, but uh, two-thirds of the time, you would partake of your own tithe. Does Does that surprise you? I think sometimes Christians have so emphasized tithing that we forget that the the Old Testament economic system was considerably more complicated. After all, first there's, there's the first fruits, where at the Feast of Pentecost you would bring a free will offering of the first of your produce and give that to the priests. Uh, the amount is not specified, just that you would give as the Lord your God shall bless you. So the first fruits was, it, it, it's not a, there's, no, there's no percentage on first fruits, it's simply bring the first portion, however much, in whatever way you wish. It, notice that this is not nearly as regimented as, ah, everybody gave you no, it's, it's, he, he wanted people to bring from their heart. Oh, you thought that was a New Testament concept? <laughs> no, actually, it was an Old Testament concept before that. But then secondly, there is the tithe. At the end of the harvest, at the Feast of Tabernacles, you would bring a tenth of the final harvest. 
And in the third year, the whole tithe would be given to the Levites and the poor. The tithe was to remind Israel that the whole harvest belongs to God, that he is our sovereign Lord. If the first fruits remind us that the first portion goes to God, the tithe reminds us that everything we have belongs to God. But also, there were various sacrifices throughout the year. Uh, there'd be various sin offerings, trespass offerings that would be brought in the cases of, of serious sin or uncleanness. There were pre- peace offerings and free will offerings that could be offered throughout the year as well. And in addition, uh, also Israel was commanded not to glean the corners of their fields uh, in order to leave something for the poor to come and gather. So if you think about the various economic obligations of the average Israelite, uh, it's well over 10%. You can't put a number on it because many of these things were based on your individual situation, how much God had blessed you and what you would give. So needless to say, I'm I'm not very impressed by the argument that says, ah, Christians are supposed to give 10%. It's like, oh, so, so Moses was not legalistic, but we should be? That sounds odd. Rather, we should think about how these principles inform our giving in an analogous way to the way in which these principles informed their giving. Because also, the economic system of the Old Testament was very different. These were household offerings based on produce. So if you were a servant or a day laborer, what would you bring at the time for the tithe? Nothing. Because that was part of the produce that you had helped produce during your labor throughout the year. And so your master, when he brings the tithe, is tithing on behalf of his whole household, which it might include a whole lot of laborers who were working for him. So that's, and that practice of sort of household tithing is actually the way, what the medieval church used, which tried to sort of reproduce the, the Old Testament system in a way. I mean, our practice of voluntary tithing of cash, I mean, the first time I've, I've ever found any reference to it was actually in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the, because that's where tithing wasn't actually, tithing was always something that was an agricultural tax. It, it created certain problems in the 17th, 18th centuries as you get this new mercantile world, this new urban world where bankers, what, what, what would a banker give to the church? He produces nothing. So bankers would, I mean, you have all the major landowners, they were the ones giving all the money to the church, and the bankers, meh, if they want to, they can, but they don't have to give a penny unless they own property. So the church has tried various methods of, of finance, uh, ever, you know, try to, try to figure out how to do this. You get all sorts of interesting things, which if, if I've, I've often thought about writing a book on the history of church finance. But, but when you think about how the apostles approach things, they live in a more urban setting. Most of the early church existed in cities. And so that's why you don't hear them talking about tithing, because the people they're talking to aren't farmers. And so that's why they talk more in terms of, of the, they use the, they use the principles of the Old Testament, but they apply the principles of the Old Testament to the church. Um, you might, well, you see it in, in 1 Corinthians 9, where, where Paul says, 
Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So the offerings of Israel were to provide the sustenance for the priests and Levites. And Paul says the offerings of the church should provide sustenance for the, the ministers. But also, Paul applies the, the, the care for the poor and the needy as well. 1 Corinthians 16 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So, yes, there should be the maintenance of the gospel ministry is important, but there should also be offerings for the poor and needy. It's why we distinguish between the general fund, which goes for the support of pastors and the general expenses of the church, and the diaconal fund, which is devoted to the care of the poor. If if God had, had wanted us to focus on a certain percentage, then he wouldn't have given so many different ways of giving. And then... Also, he wouldn't have told them to partake of their own gifts. Because, remember, the tithe is brought to the temple in Jerusalem, and and then you would celebrate and have a big feast, and then make sure that you included the poor. Uh, So, how do we apply this? How does this work in the church today? Well, uh, you should think of, obviously, your, your offerings to the church should be included in your giving. Uh, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament pers- specifies a percentage, but it is worth it is worth noting if if the tithe was a was you know ten percent was sort of this this is what God gave even as back far back as Abraham, then that's a it's a that's it's a good number to to have as a starting point. So that's where I, I'm not saying ah oh, who cares actually t- tithing ten percent. That's that's a good a good number to to, to sort of to start with, uh, but it's not it's not a this is. You know, I, I once had a woman after I preached a sermon like this. She came up to me and said, "Pastor, you've just destroyed my life. All these years, I was thinking all I had to do was give ten percent, and God would be, and God would be happy with me. And now she's like, and now you're just telling me that that I can't be sure of that. Well, if you're thinking that. If I just do this and this and this, then God will be happy with me. That's not a good way of thinking about the way you relate to God and the way you use the things God has given you. So, so that's where, yes, by all means, uh, you should provide support for your pastor, support for the church. But also, um, as you think about what you are giving for, in the, uh, for the care for the poor, part of your tax money goes to this. Why does our nation have such a robust tax, uh, sort of safety net for, for the poor? It's actually because the church taught magistrates over the last 1,500 years to care for the poor. If you go back and look at how the Roman, ancient Romans and other cultures before that, or the ancient Germans, I mean, you don't see a whole lot of robust social safety nets in the pre-Christian world. And so there's a way in which... Yes, the portion of your tax money that goes for helping the poor uh, is actually part of what you think about the gleanings principle, what you would leave for the poor. But 
Now, this also means that it would be a really good idea for Christians to get involved in government and be part of making sure that that money is used well. So if you want to get a job in working in social services, that's a, that's a bit, that this, these are actually good things to do. But also, think about how, how you use your resources in hospitality. Because this big party that you have in Jerusalem every year, you were supposed to include the, the sojourner, the Levite, the poor. So if you're just thinking about the money I spend on having my friends over, doing stuff with people like me, well, not sure that counts quite as closely. But because part of what God wanted for us to do with the tithe was care for those in need. And so, but yes, and, and actually, and in rejoicing. I mean, verse 26 Spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. This is a big party that we're having when we we go to the the feast. And and it's actually perhaps striking and shocking to us that God commands us to spend money on what our appetite craves. Does that sound odd? But when we have come to the place where God has placed his name, when we have gathered with the saints to worship God and fellowship with one another, this is why we have a fellowship meal on the first Sunday of the month. It's why we do our summer village. This is part of of the way in which we express our rejoicing in what God has done as we revel with holy joy in the good gifts which God has provided. Part of what God is saying is delight in the bounty of this good creation over which God has made you stewards. Delight in the inheritance that he has given you in Jesus Christ. Not for your own selfish pleasure. And the way you know that you're not doing it for your own selfish pleasure is because you you reach out and you include others and you're not driving them away, you're drawing them in. Now, so both of these issues in terms of eating that Uh, only that which is clean, bringing offerings to the place where God's name dwelt. Both of these issues uh, became a problem during the time of the exile. How can they keep clean and holy in the midst of pagan culture? Uh, Daniel and his friends objected when they were expected to eat the Babylonian delicacies because Daniel understood there was a spiritual point in these laws. Their separation from the practices of the nations was to be an entire way of life not just a few cultural oddities. It had to do with maintaining the holiness of the name of the Lord. We just read about this recently in Isaiah 52 in the evening service when, when, God, when God called his people to depart, to go out from Babylon, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard in the midst of rejoicing and, and in, the, in the deliverance that God had wrought, in, in the restoration from exile that God had promised, God still maintains his call to holiness. Now, why did God emphasize the importance of avoiding the unclean? Well, it's because the holiness of Israel is central for their calling to be a light to the nations. After all, the very next line after saying, depart, uh, keep Purify yourselves, touch no unclean thing. The very next line says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And speaks of the suffering servant who would sprinkle many nations. 
Because the whole point of Israel's holiness, the whole point of their separateness from the nations was not for their personal benefit. It was that they might be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And that is precisely why Paul uses that same passage in 2 Corinthians when he says that this is what's supposed to characterize us. Because in Jesus, the singular suffering servant, Jesus has done that which we could not do for ourselves. He has brought us to God. And so therefore, the call for us to be holy, the call for us to be characterized by practices that are different from the nations, means that we need to go out from the midst of the nations around us, that we might be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, mediating the blessings of God to the nations. And sure, we don't have the old dietary regulations. Jesus taught his disciples that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus, Mark tells us, he declared all foods clean. But rather, Jesus says, that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is saying that the Mosaic regulations were designed to teach you about the heart, They were designed to show you that true defilement comes out of our hearts. You don't defile God's name simply by outward words or actions. Indeed, the only reason why anybody has ever taken God's name in vain in their speech is because they already had taken it in vain in their heart. So sure, Jesus has removed the specific dietary laws of the Old Testament. So yes, you can have bacon. But... That doesn't mean that everything is clean. As Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. For us to regard the name of the Lord as holy means that we recognize that our our Babylon is the culture around us the socioeconomic power that has set itself up as a rival claimant for our affections and constantly bombards us to, to keep our heart and mind away from Jesus. And God has called you out of Babylon to come and dwell in the new Jerusalem, that you would no longer set your affections on the things that this culture prizes, but that you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. To regard the name of the Lord as holy means that your conduct reflects his holiness. We are exiles and sojourners. This is not our true home. We live in Babylon, but we must not be consumed by a a culture that is preoccupied with material things. And because the word has become flesh, because God has joined himself to humanity, therefore his holy name has come to rest upon you in your baptism. So if you've, if you've not been baptized and you want God's holy name to be on you, then come. Talk to me after the service. If you, if you don't believe in the Lord, if you, have, if you have not set your heart and mind on him, come talk to me. Come talk to any of the elders because 
Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father and his holy name is set upon us in our baptism. And if you're struggling with, I, I think I'm not doing a very good job of living out that profession, then let's talk. Find somebody, an older, wiser Christian that you trust. Let's talk. Because, because the only way out of the mess is through repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your holy name that you have placed upon us, that you have given to us in our baptism, that we might be, that we might be your own children, fellow heirs with Jesus. Lord, have mercy upon us for his sake and be gracious to us because we are, we are weak and frail and we need your grace, we need your holiness. So help us, Lord, to, to turn away from our old ways and to turn to you trusting in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.